Father, you are awesome. You're holy. You're righteous. You're good. You're wise. You're powerful. You're loving. You're gracious. You're giving. Oh, boy. What a, what a privilege it is, Lord, to come before you, to bow before you, to proclaim the glories of your name and to do it with my family. Believers, those who love you, we gather together to worship you, to reverence you, to honor you. Because you are worthy. Thank you so much for that song that you gave us today, Lord. To remember your holiness and your power. I pray, Father, that we would, we would compose our hearts. That we would listen to your word. Spirit, we invite you here. Lord, we want to walk in your spirit. We want to dwell in your spirit. We want to be yielded to your spirit, especially as your word is being proclaimed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Fun fact about that song, Have I Not Commanded You? I'm one of the people, I'm one of the old people to whom this is an old song. Appreciate, Dave, you mentioning Dennis Clark, the pastor of one of our sister churches. Fun fact, he was also a pastor of this church until about 2000. He was part of the team that planted our original church in College Park, Maryland in the late 70s, early 80s. And then he was a pastor of a church um, in Silver Spring called Valley Brook Community Church in which we were planted out of in 1993 and he was here until about 2000 or 2001 and now he's living in Colorado with his family. I see him occasionally but not often enough and he was a man who proclaimed God's truth to me when I was much younger at the university and he had a profound effect on me and this song that we sang is, is one of the ways that he has an effect on me and other people too so Dennis, if you ever listen to this recording, thank you, brother. We appreciate your influence. So, when last we left our heroes, back on November 13th, that seems like another decade, much less two months ago, they were commissioned by Moses. And they were, to, they were, they, they were about to enter the promised land. They were, they were commanded, follow God's covenants, respect the covenants, and obey God. I'd like to review quickly some of the materials that we have. Um, our, this is our Bible, biblical review series. And our biblical review series is we're going to be going through the Bible, the entire Bible, in about two years, which is pretty awesome. And we have some pretty awesome family resources to go through that some batch this thing. One of the things, one of the very important things for our church, for our local body, is to promote the health of our families. Our nuclear families, life group families, this, this family. This is, an amazing, this is an amazing way to have family devotions. It doesn't take that long. Five or six pages per book. You can do this easily over the course of a week. And if you did this, if you did this throughout, the, throughout the year, your family would be edified, encouraged, and challenged too. So we, we have copies of these things. You can purchase them at, uh, in, in the lobby. If we don't have them down here, we can pull them out of the church office. If you don't have a copy yet, we'd be happy to sell them to you at cost. Um, okay, so, and again, one of the reasons we're doing this is to remind ourselves that this is a blitz through the Bible. It's not as fast as a blitz as we're going to have in two weeks with Walk Through the Bible, but this is a two-year blitz through the Bible. Why are we doing this? Is we're reminding ourselves, we're reminding ourselves, the purpose of Scripture is to reveal God. God reveals himself to us through Scripture. And Scripture, all of Scripture points to who? Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. It points to his, 
It points to his earthly life, his resurrection, his second coming, and his eternal reign. All of this is intended to focus on him because he's worthy of that focus and he will reign forever one day. And our purpose for doing this is to increase our biblical literacy. And that's two parts. Our biblical literacy is two parts. One is our brain and the other part is our heart. And of course we have to have something in our brain to, in order to obey. So we want to understand. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to absorb the knowledge portion of Scripture. And it's important that we take time to read it carefully and understand it and get advice and counsel from other men and women throughout the ages who have had just awesome things to say about Scripture. And then when we understand it, then we each have a personal responsibility to respond to it. I can't respond to it for you. Your parents can't respond to it for you. Your friends can't respond to it for you. You're not a believer in God or a Christian just because you're part of a group or you're part of an organization. You are a believer in God. You are a Christian because of the personal decisions that you make in your own personal interaction with God. And the amazing thing is God interacts with us, each one of us, right where we're at. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows, he knows what my brain is capable of. He knows what other more capable brains are capable of. He meets us there. He reveals his truth to us. And then he invites and commands us into a relationship of obedience and love and joy. So this is why we're doing this. We're giving ourselves out. We're reminding ourselves of what an amazing resource his word is. And we're going to, we're going to learn. And by, by his grace, we're going to obey. Another, another resource that we have that you should have seen on the welcome table or on the little semicircle table out there is the, our biblical review um, handouts that go with each of these, each of these studies. There's an at-a-glance page that gives a high-level view of the, um, of the background of the book, and it also gives an, and a second page that goes with it that gives a breakdown of the book itself. So each, you should have that. Hopefully, you can dig through all of your piles of things on your desk or coffee tables, and you may remember that you've got this little binder with handy punched holes, and you can, you can put all these pages in your binder as time goes by. You can write in it, you can use it for quiet times, you can pull it out when you're going through your family devotions, but I encourage you, keep track of this. If you somehow lost it or it got recycled or thrown out or used, used in the birdcage, then let us know and we'll, try, we'll get you another copy as soon as possible. So that's the reintroduction. The reintroduction to what we're doing for the biblical review. And for, the, for this book, today's book is... The sixth book of the Bible, which is Joshua, which fits neatly with Mike's Joshua Project. I'll have to, Mike, you'll have to tell me someday if the Joshua Project has something to do with Joshua, the biblical character, because I don't know that. Um, the major, we're going to cover the major themes of this book, we're gonna, and the major themes of God's faithfulness, and the theme of God's judgment, and then God's call to the nation of Israel, and of course, by application, his call to us as well. So just very quickly, as a rough timeline, it's a rough timeline, about, these are very proximate dates because there's just no way to show any sort of granularity on a slide that's 60 feet away from you. About 1500 BC was the exodus from Egypt. They, the children of Israel wandered in the desert for about 40 years and then, and then started the, the conquest of Canaan, which we're going to talk about today. That's the book the topic of the book of Joshua. Interestingly, the, the, this, the authorship of Joshua is, is 
church tradition, Jewish tradition, is Joshua dictated. He either wrote it or he dictated this about the time that he wrote it. So this, this, these words, these things are 3,500 years old. And the oldest manuscripts we have of the book of Joshua come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date to the 1st or 2nd century B.C., and they were discovered in the 1940s. Before that, the next oldest copy we had of the entire Old Testament was from the 11th century. So just, as a, just another, another little note that the, the things that we're reading from the book of Joshua were, were passed down throughout the ages. We have actual manuscripts from 2nd century B.C., and then the next, the next most intact manuscript is from like 12, 1300 years later. So it's ancient. It's ancient. This is the start of Israel's history in the promised land. So here is the outline of the book of Joshua. This is what we're going to talk about today. One, chapters one through five, the children of Israel entering Canaan. And then chapters six through 13, their conquering of Canaan. And then 13 through 21, the distribution of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, and then Joshua's final orders to the nation of Israel. We're going to be reading a decent amount of scripture today as part of today's message. I'll be reading excerpts and then commenting on them as we go through. Feel free to flip open to Joshua. Um, and if you want to follow along in your Bible or, in, or your phone or something like that. And we'll be flipping around quite a bit. And um, feel free to do that. Feel free to join us. So, the first segment, entering Canaan, of course. Joshua takes command. The key verse in this there is Joshua 1.9, which is the verse after what we just sang. We sang this verse. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Moses, God says to Joshua, Moses is dead. Moses is dead. But I'm going to fulfill all these promises through you. And you take command. And the children of Israel, the nations, the tribes, the leaders, they said, Joshua, you are in command, and we will follow you. And one of the first things they did is he sent spies to the city of Jericho. So they were on the east side of the Jordan River. Jericho was on the west side of the, uh, the Jordan River. He sent spies to this river, um, so to, the, to the city of Jericho. Big city, ancient city. They spied it out and were, and were, were looking for ways to conquer this city. And they met a woman in the city. Her name was Rahab. She was a harlot, and she recognized, she told them, I fear God, and I recognize that God has given, you, given us over into your hands. Everybody here is terrified. They said, please, if I help you, please spare me. And the spies, the Jewish spies promised, if you help us and you remain faithful to us, we will spare you. And they came back. She said, yep, that's what we'll do. We're going, we're, I'm, going, I'm going to be faithful. They said, gather all your people into your house, and we'll, when we come, we will spare you. So the spies returned, and then, and then Joshua commanded the people of Israel, we're going to cross the Jordan now. We've got to get all these people across the Jordan. Now, the Jordan's not the Red Sea. It's not as deep, but it's still a body of water, and you've got a lot of people to get across the water. So the next thing that happens is the Lord said, gather the people up and march them across the Jordan River, bringing the Ark of the Covenant with you. And God performed a miracle. The miracle was is that the, the, the waters of the Jordan stopped flowing. And the people of, of Israel walked across the Jordan on their way into the Promised Land. They, ma they made it across, and, and then Joshua commanded, the Lord commanded Joshua 
And Joshua commanded the people to collect stones, and they put them in the river as a memorial of what God has accomplished. And that was their entrance into the promised land. And then after that, the next thing that happens is part of their preparation for the conquest of the promised land is Joshua met somebody. He met somebody, tough-looking dude, showed up fully armored, resplendent in his display, and he challenged him. He said, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? And, and this, this person replied, he said, I'm not for you or against you. I'm for myself. He met the commanders of the, Lord, the Lord's army. The commander of the Lord's army met Joshua and confirmed his commission to him. It, to me, it felt, as I was reading this, I read through the book of Joshua yesterday as part of my preparation for this message. It felt to me as if this is a general coming on the scene and he's inspecting his troops. Are you guys ready? We have a job to do. And, and, and he reminded Joshua, this is not just about you, but this is about me and what I'm about to accomplish in this land through you. Pretty humbling thing. And Joshua very appropriately, very appropriately, humbled himself and bowed before this commander. One of the interesting things as I was reading through, I noticed that um, one of the commentaries said, Joshua is one of the few books where the main character doesn't fail miserably at almost every step. And, uh, and I, I noticed there's probably a dozen places, and it was just very heartening and challenging for me too. There's about a dozen places where it says, the Lord said to Joshua, da, 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 da. and it says, Joshua did it. The Lord said, 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 Joshua did it. This went on for decades. This went on for decades. So inspiring and challenging to see someone that, that hears the Lord's word and just does it. It's also inspiring to see someone that is obeying the Lord and not rebelling against him when he has the chance to. Next segment of the book, the conquest of Canaan. So the starting point, as you can see on this diagram here on the, with the new, new, number one, that's where the, that's where the, that's where the, that's where the nation started. They crossed east to west into, the, into um, Canaan. Um, they attacked the walls. They attacked Jericho according to the Lord's instructions. He said, walk around the walls of Jericho. How many times, kids? Seven. Seven. Older kids, thank you. They walked around the walls of Jericho seven times, and the walls came down, and the Israelites came in and completely destroyed the city and the people and the animals and, and looted the treasures. Of course, Rahab was saved because she followed through. In her, in her act of faith and obedience, she lowered her scarlet thread from the window. They noticed her, and they preserved her and her family. We'll be talking more about her scarlet thread in a little bit. So Jericho, resounding victory. They obeyed. And then the next city on their list was the city of Ai. Now, Ai was a little bit different. There was defeat at the city of Ai because there was disobedience from, uh, from some, one of the Israelites. They thought this was an easy battle. They sent a couple thousand men up there. They were beaten. And, and uh, Joshua was, was in despair. What is going on? We were victorious. We're listening to you. What's going wrong? And God says, there is sin in the camp. 
and it needs to be cleansed. And I want to take a closer look at this sequence because it's kind of sobering as we look at it. So this is Joshua chapter 7. Verse 1, a man named Achan had stolen some of the dedicated things from Jericho, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. The men of Israel were soundly defeated by the men of Ai. But the Lord said to Joshua, get up. So Joshua was in despair. After the defeat, Joshua was in despair. The Lord said, get up. Why are you lying on your face like that? Israel has sinned and broken my covenants. And early the next morning, Joshua brought the tribes of Israel before the Lord. God said, we're going to figure this out. Not that he needed to figure it out. He was showing Joshua what was going on. He said, you're going to bring the entire nation before me, tribe by tribe, family by family, clan by clan, person by person. And we're going to see, and I'm going to show you what's going on here. So he brought the entire nation before them, tribe by tribe, family by family, clan by clan, person by person, and Achan was singled out. Okay, so quick sidebar here. I ha you know I had to do this. Who's, who's heard of the recent rage with, um, you go to a website and you get an AI-generated web uh, picture, right? Don't, no? All right, humor me for a minute. It's a thing. So it usually generates some very weird thing. I just had to generate an AI-generated image of the siege of AI. And this is what they came up with. They still have some room to go on this. So you got the, you got the modern stuff here, and you got the old-fashioned stuff on the bottom. I don't think the AI computer quite got it, but I could not resist that urge. Anyway, back to poor Achan. Verse 19, chapter 7, Then Lot, Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord. This is after Achan's been selected. I was like, how would you like to be like, out of all this crowd or a crowded school? Something's wrong here. And you get called forward to stand in front of, what, a couple million people? Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Verse 20, Achan replied, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And verse 25, Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies. One person from the entire nation. He confessed his sin before, after he was found out, of course. And he was still judged. And he was executed by, the, by, by Joshua in order, to, in order to cleanse the nation of Israel. Pretty sobering picture. But then, after that, things turned around. With that cleansing, God gave them victory to Ai. We won't go into all the tactical details. It was an awesome battle, and uh, the Israelites won. And then they had one more hiccup before things kicked into high gear. They had a neighboring nation that saw what was happening and how badly the Israelites were beating everybody, and they came and basically tricked them, lied to them, and uh, the Israelites kind of naively accepted their story at face value and agreed not to wipe them out. So... Israel has obeyed and messed up, and they're cleansed, and they're refocused by not making foolish promises to some of the surrounding nations. And Joshua then, after getting calibrated at Jericho and Ai, he kicks it into high gear and goes to war against the southern kings in Canaan. And one of the key features of this battle against five kings is Joshua prayed and asked that the sun would stand still. 
Joshua 10, 14, it says, There's never been a day like this one before or since when the Lord answered such a prayer, meaning have the sun and the moon stand still in the sky. Surely the Lord fought for Israel that day. This campaign is now on afterburners. And the thing that stuck out to me as I was reading this is this is not, this is not just this is not just nations going to war with each other. This miracle, there's miracles that kick things off. The miracle of the parting of the Jordan, the miracle of the walls of Jericho coming down, and this miracle of the sun stopping in the sky. This, again, it tells me this is the commander of the Lord's army that's in charge. There are supernatural things happening here, and God himself is asserting his authority. God himself is asserting his authority. So Joshua conquers the southern and then goes on a tear through the northern kingdoms. And in all in total, it says that he conquered 31 kings. So Moses, it says, he conquered two kings before they crossed the Jordan. Joshua, and this is over the course of a long period of time, conquered 31 kings. And we'll read a little bit more about that as well, too. Because he wasn't kind to these kings. Big, next big section of... Um, Joshua is the distribution of the land. Each tribe received a portion. In fact, Joshua and Caleb received their promised portions as well. Joshua 21 says, Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord has given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he'd spoken came true. The future boundaries of the kingdom of Israel were set in place in, in roughly. I circled here, the circle on the map here circles the kingdom of Judah. We're not going to go into that in detail, but... This is a future, this, this will be very important in the future for the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Future, the current establishment of the kingdom, future boundaries, future trouble that's going to come for, for Israel. I just want to pause quickly and say what an incredible journey this is for, for Israel. You go from Abraham, who's a nomad wandering from Mesopotamia, coming into the land, probably terrified that someone's going to kill him at night. And you have a small, growing into a small tribe of 70 people that are desperately fleeing to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And then hundreds of years of oppression in Egypt. And then, being, and then growing into a mighty nation. And then being led out, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then over the course of a couple of decades, I think it was about 25 years, that, that Caleb himself was fighting. They now have cleansed the land and they own this land. And it says not a single one of all the good promises that the Lord has given has failed. Not a single one is unfulfilled. It's just an amazing story of God's faithfulness. He said I was going to do this. He said I'm going to plant you here. And he planted them in that land. God's faithfulness. So I want to talk briefly here about what the scarlet thread is. One of the key things, one of the most exciting parts of this cruise through the Old Testament is identifying the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread means how is Jesus highlighted, either symbolically or specifically, in these passages. And I just want to sort of highlight very quickly, love to have more detailed conversations on this. So Moses could not enter the promised land. Moses was, God gave the law through Moses. That is some commentators, and I, th I would tend to agree with this. It's open for conversation. I think this is symbolic there. So God gave the law. And the law was a revelation from God. He expected people to obey it. But, and Moses was the lawgiver. But, but Moses and the law could not take 
the nations into the promised land. Just like our outward obedience or even inward obedience to the law can't take us into the promised land of a fully restored relationship with Jesus Christ because we are all sinful and we must be perfect and the only way to be perfect is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the promised land for us is a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ and ultimately spending eternity with him. The law cannot get you there. Just like the law couldn't get Moses into the promised land, it required a further revelation. It required Joshua to take them in there. The commander of the Lord's army is definitely a pre-incarnate representation of Christ. It's a theophany. It's a representation of God. This is not an angel or some warrior. It is. He said, he said to Joshua, take your shoes off. Who else, did, who else did God say take his shoes off to? Where was that from? Exodus. And who was the character? And who was the, and who, what was, what, who was the one that told him to take his shoes off? A burning bush. So it's the same thing. This is God, the manifestation, a theophany. A theophany. And then last but not least is Rahab's literal scarlet thread. If there's this scarlet thread concept, this is where it comes from. This is where it comes from. She said, lower this scarlet rope from your window and we will not slay you. And in the act of faith, Rahab did that because she feared God. And she, and she, followed, she followed those instructions. The scarlet thread is representative of her faith. She's talked about it in the New Testament as a woman of faith. And it's representative of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Scarlet Thread is anchored in this one story. And it's really very inspiring. It's, I mean, it's inspiring as well, too, because Rahab became part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. She was one of his mentioned ancestors. Great, 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 and then at, at the end also there's Joshua's, um, his charge to Israel, which we'll cover that in a minute. But, so that's the, that's the overall structure of the book. Uh, these are the things to wrap your head around. Um, but let's talk about a couple of things. There's tons of themes. I'm going to pick two themes. One is the faithfulness of God. One is God's faithfulness. And we're going to read some more scripture here. So first of all, why is it called the promised land? Such a such a churchy word. It's not even a churchy word. It's like a word that has been like absorbed by our culture. It's become like a meme in our culture. Too. If you say, I'm going to the promised land, or I made it to the promised land, it's, a, it's an indication that something massive, something highly anticipated, some long-term, highly desired goal has been met. You could talk about the promised land and have no understanding of the Bible or Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, because it's just that common of a phrase. Oh, so it was, it's called the promised land because it was promised to the patriarchs throughout the ages. And we're just review some of these passages here. They're listed. These verses are listed on your notes. I'm just going to read them through. It's promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 7. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land as your possession. And this is the passage where God does a covenant with Abraham and knocks him out and fulfills the covenant himself. Founded in this covenant. He makes the promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13 and 14. The ground you're lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will, are as, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. 
is referring to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So by this time, hundreds of years have passed, and God is reminding him, this is a chain of promises to you and your forebears that I'm going to honor. Also, interestingly, too, if you think about it, and this kind of ties in with our Christmas series, one of, the, one, of our, one of our Christmas series, which I think Kier spoke on, is out of Egypt. Israel was hidden in Egypt. Jesus was hidden in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. Scripture says Jesus was brought I've, out of Egypt. I've called my son. This is where that comes from. This is why this is part of the prophecy of Jesus. This is why it's all so interconnected. Exodus chapter 23, 31. And I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the eastern wilderness to the Euphrates River. It's a huge portion of land that they did not conquer under Moses or Joshua or even David. And this, this looks forward into um, Christ's reign on earth. And Moses again, Deuteronomy 1.8. Look, I'm giving you all this land. Go and occupy it. For this is, this is the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants. And finally, Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, it will be, it will be a land that I have given to you. So this is God's promise to all the leaders over centuries. It's promised to them. He fulfilled that promise. Another interesting thing here, which I think is, uh, ties this color thread, the Hebrew name, for the, we say Joshua, that's an Anglicanized way of saying this character's name. In Hebrew, that name is, who knows? Yeshua. Does that sound familiar? It would sound extremely familiar to our friends, our brothers and sisters in Emmanuel Messianic Jewish congregation that meet here on Saturday. Joshua. The Hebrew way of saying Joshua is Yeshua. And it is the Hebrew way of saying Jesus. It all works together. It is so worth your time to tie these things together, to read these things, to read the Old Testament, and then flip forward to the, Old, the New Testament and see how it's fulfilled. To read something in the New Testament and say, man, that sounds really familiar. And then take the time to go back and say, ah, it just drives stakes deep stakes, deep foundations into your faith. If you see how it all works together over thousands of years, over scores of characters, men and women who trusted God, take that time. Honor that. Understand how important it is. The next theme is God's judgment. I'll read this passage. The commander appears, Joshua 5, verses 13 and 14. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him, sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What nice recovery. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told, after centuries of prophecy, after decades of preparation among the people of Israel, the people of Israel have arrived. The commander shows up to inspect his people. Whose side is he on? Whose side is he on? Answer my question. Neither one. Interestingly, interesting response. 
cleansing of the camp, camp, part of the judgment of God. Joshua 7, 10 through 12. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up, why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. And I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. This is, the, this is of course, referring to Achan that we talked about a little while ago. Achan was killed. Achan was judged. Even though, he, again, he confessed after the fact, but he was still killed. Reminded me of the passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, judgment starts with the household of God. Judgment starts with the household of God. God cleans, as always, he, he has his own holiness, and he sets apart his people, and he calls us to holiness, and he takes steps to cleanse us. Now, of course, we're cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're also challenged, we're also disciplined, we're also trained as believers. We're also, we're, we're, we're commanded to honor him, to love him, to not sin, even though we have forgiveness through Christ. Judgment starts with the household of God destruction of the Canaanites. On the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. He said, let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stayed in the place until the nation of Israel had defeated his enemy. We talked about this. This is also referenced in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 11. And the interesting thing there is the context in that is not just like the conquest of Canaan, but the sun standing still and the moon standing still. The context in Habakkuk is God's final judgment. So this is all escalated. There are miraculous things happening here. This is all escalated. This is God making a statement that he is holy, that he is righteous, and sin will be punished. These are not just normal victories. The miracles intensify the message. God is holy, he's here, and he punishes sin. Destruction of the southern Canaanites, Joshua 8, 29. Joshua impaled the king of Ai on a sharpened pole and left him there until evening. At sunset, the Israelites took down the body, Joshua 10, 23. So they brought the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, the five southern kings. Joshua told the commanders of his army, come and put your feet on the king's neck. Joshua killed each of the five kings and impaled them on five sharpened poles, and they hung there until evening. Northern Canaan, Joshua 11. Joshua slaughtered all the other kings and their people, completely destroying them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded so Joshua conquered the entire region, the hill country, the entire Negev, the whole area around the town of Goshen, the western foothills, the Jordan Valley, the mountains of Israel, and the Galilean foothills. For the Lord hardened their hearts, referring to the kings in northern Canaan, and caused them to fight against the Israelites. So they were completely destroyed without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took control of the entire land, just as the Lord had instructed them. He gave them to the people of Israel as their critical, their special possession, dividing the land among them. So the land finally rested from war. So God's judgment was completion of the it was completion of the conquest, and all in all, thirty-one kings were defeated. It was an incredibly brutal campaign. It lasted for decades. Quite a contrast from the Sunday school-friendly story about Jericho and the Veggie Tales taunting the people from the walls, right? 
maybe it's good that we all have pictures of uh, five, 31 kings being impaled. Pause for a moment. Now, I know I'm running over, but just pause for a moment. Our modern minds reels at the scope of this carnage. And yet, I'm going to say this to myself and to each one of us. You are not invited. You look at that spectacle. You are not invited to judge Israel. You're not invited to judge God. You are invited to express reverence at a holy God whose standard of perfection we can barely, we can't comprehend. And that perfection through us, thank God, is offered as a free gift through Jesus Christ. It's an ugly, ugly world that we live in many times. Believe it or not, it was way uglier 3,500 years ago. So I encourage you, as you look at this through a modern lens, and it's inevitable that we do, it's, an, it's, it's fine to be sobered by the carnage. But your revulsion at the bloodshed, my revulsion at the bloodshed, should be absolutely placed in context with the holiness of God and the fact that he is real, and that he judges sin, and that this world is temporary, and his kingdom is forever. The final theme is Joshua's call to obedience at the end of his life. His final instructions to the Israelites. To be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote, Joshua said in the book of instruction, choose today whom you will serve, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he's been so good to you, such a bitter prophecy, because we know what comes in the centuries that follow. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. You are a witness to our own decision. Joshua said, you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied, we are witnesses to what we have said. So as a conclusion for the message today, I'd like, I'd like to invite you to join me in an exercise. And I'd like us to imagine ourselves being commissioned and challenged by a 110-year-old dude that's just spent the last 25 years of his life slaughtering at the Lord's command and understanding that he is following the instructions of the commanders of the Lord's army and that our fate is in our own hands. So I'd like to invite you to stand up. This is the application portion of our message. It's really simple. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And I'd like you to think about it, not just reflexively repeat. But I'd like you to think about it. And with your conviction, I'd like you to reply. And reply, think of yourself before the Lord, think of yourself as part of the Israeli, Israelis before uh, Joshua, whatever, whatever, you, whatever is helpful for you. So I'm going to read my section, and then you guys are going to read in the red if that's your conviction. Make sense? And then we'll pray. Choose today whom you will serve. So, you've chosen to serve the Lord. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy and your revelation. God, I tremble before you. I see the, the destruction that you wreaked on the... Um, 
Canaanites, Lord, and I know, Lord, that my sin makes me equally eligible for that sort of wrath. But through the grace of God, through your son, Jesus Christ, through your immense mercy, nothing that I've done, nothing that I've done deserves your mercy. But you are merciful to me, and you're merciful to each one of us. Thank you for that, Father. Teach us to tremble before you. Teach us to meditate on these harsh realities of life. And I pray it will result in us loving you more, trusting you more, and obeying you. And if part of our obedience is with a little tremor of reverence and fear because of who you are, Lord, for my part, that's fine. I want to love you, want to serve you. Lord, we are witnesses to what we have said. Amen.